This is where my doctor said to me, if you don't change your diet, I'll need to put you on a statin. Cholesterol goes up for many different reasons and healing is definitely one of them. I do remember that my cholesterol was always in the 100s. So I was 65 pounds overweight on a fat-free diet. I was a chronic yo-yo dieter. I thought I was doing all the right things and my hormones were messed up. It really just sent me on a path looking for something different. Cholesterol and saturated fat are the backbone for our steroid hormones. All of our hormones are synthesized from LDL and cholesterol. I would rather see cholesterol in the 200s than the 100s. So my vitamin D was 19 and then it went to 16. Your vitamin D should go up on carnivore, not go down. The US medical range is 30 to 100. Optimal vitamin D that I look for with my clients is 80 to 100. I get clients who are at 12, 17, 30, even 30 is way too low. The doctor says, oh yeah, your vitamin D is normal. Yet someone is having tons of autoimmune issues. Vitamin D is such an important nutrient for a lot of different things. So maybe I should take a vitamin D supplement. I'm scared, like maybe I'm thinking, do I have a uh, leaky gut or something? So let's talk about kidney function, liver function, and probably the most important, LDL. Just a quick one, Dr. Anthony Chafee and Professor Bart K are joining us for the next carnivore challenge. So if you're new to carnivore, maybe you have questions about how much protein and fat you need to eat or troubleshooting questions. Well, you can ask all of these questions to these wonderful doctors and our carnival coaches who have lost over 200 pounds on a carnival diet. So if you'd like to join, there is a clickable link in the description of this video where you're gonna get 20% off or just head to academy.5minutebody.com. And if you love this video, please feel free to hit that subscribe button. Danny, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Now, when I first started Carnivore, my doctor told me I need to put you on a statin. And I really wish I knew somebody like you who is a blood work specialist for over two decades and a board certified practitioner. And that would really help me not freak out and get out of control. So today, Danny and I are going to talk about everything kidney function, cholesterol, and everything that we're worried about. And we're actually going to show you my results and dive deep into what they mean for you so that if you go have a blood test done, you understand what it means. So let's start off with the blood glucose or A1C. So my A1C went from 5.5 to 4.7. So that is the one thing that my doctor was happy with, very unhappy with everything else. Is that a normal thing that happens on a carnival diet? Yeah, 100%. So the, you know, the medical doctors are looking for the usual high cholesterol and other things that they're going to say causes all kinds of degenerative d diseases. And what we know is that there's a lot of context missing in that. And there's a lot of um, room for uh, more information and diving deeper to really learn what those markers mean and what to actually look for. So when we measure a blood glucose or A1C, why is that important and why do we want that to be lower? And what is too low values? Because people sometimes want it to get really, really low. But why is that bad? So first, I want to just say like everything needs to be in context with the individual person. So there's going to be some general rules of thumb and things like that. And the reason I bring this up is because your initial question, blood glucose, what's too low? Well, some people are going to feel great in the 70s and other people are going to feel very hypoglycemic in the 70s. So optimal that I look for is anywhere from 
85 to 92. Uh, some would argue that 90s are too high. I believe that high 90s are too high because then if that's one day and one snapshot, somebody could be jumping into the hundreds and not realize it. And that would be too high for fasting morning glucose. But as far as the, the too low, for many people in the 70s is too low. For some people, the 60s is too low. But I find that optimal tends to be in that 80 to very low 90 range. So I wanted to know, on my carnival group, we have so many people that say, my blood glucose has increased when I've started a carnival diet. And they're actually six months in. Why might that be happening? Is that something that people should be worried about? Well... I would always want to know what does increase mean. I would want to know what their baseline is. And I would want to, I would want them to look at what their pattern is actually doing during the day. So whether that's a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, uh, finger pricking, which I know can be a little bit of a pain, but you really want to see uh, the patterns and what's happening from waking until nighttime, and then sometimes even more importantly, overnight. So overnight glucose can be um, uh, really telling as far as what's going on for someone. And then making an evaluation from there to see what's happening for that person. Um, I think in general, uh, looking at you know reasons why it might go up could be stressors, could be a little bit of healing, could be a little bit of transitioning. Uh, there's a lot of uh, reasons as far as that goes. And does too much protein increase your blood glucose? Um, I think this is such a controversial, controversial topic, as you well know. Um, and I think, and I've honestly seen for some people that it does and for others, it does not. So I think that that kind of gets into fine tuning ideal macros, amount of protein and fat, insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, how much activity someone's doing. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going down a rabbit hole already. <laughs> Um, but all of those things are gonna all those things are gonna play a factor into how someone um, you know what happens with someone and their glucose. And that's really important though, because if somebody has insulin resistance or a, or a background of metabolic syndrome or some other disease, that's gonna affect your blood glucose. You can't expect a carnival diet or if you do a meat heavy diet just to reduce it straight away. There is some healing and some background things that have to happen, and that's why it might be going up and down. Is that right? Yes. And the other factor is going to be hormones and cortisol. Um, so blood sugar is going to rise, you know, depending on cortisol levels, depending on underlying stressors. So when I say underlying stressors, I'm really talking about like physiological things going on, uh, gut imbalances, autoimmune type stuff. Uh, yes, external stressors are going to affect your cortisol too. And you can also see a role, you know, see that playing a role. So there's a lot of different things, uh, all air quote stressors that could be related. Okay. So if your blood glucose is going up and down, that's okay. Keep at it with a carnival diet and kind of reduce your stress and background things that could be elevating your blood glucose. The next one I want to talk about is the lipid panel. The first one is total cholesterol. Now, this is this is where my doctor said to me, I'm very worried about this number, total cholesterol. I said, oh, really? Why? And I need to, if you don't, so she said to me, if you don't change your diet, I'll need to put you on a statin. I just freaked out. And then I texted Dr. Chafee after, and I said, this is what my doctor said to me. And then he said, just fire her. Um, so my cholesterol numbers, so it was 109, and then it went to 300. So it tripled in three months. What do you think about that? So cholesterol goes up for many different reasons and healing is definitely one of them. So I would rather see cholesterol in the 200s than the 100s. I think 
for me, when I look at cholesterol, cholesterol and honestly, most blood markers should never be looked at as one marker. They always need to be looked at. Like I analyze blood work in the context of, of everything of the thyroid and those are expanded markers. So TSH doesn't tell us anything really important about the thyroid. It has to be an expanded panel. We have to look at the CBC with the differentials. We have to look at all the metabolic inflammatory markers. So for me, one number, while I understand like your question, oh, it tripled. What does that mean? Well, what are all the other things going on? How are you feeling? Have you lost weight? Um, There's so many factors that are going to just affect that one number. And then you have to look at, you know, changes over time as well. So what's going to, you know, three months, six months, where were you, you know, when you first did the initial test, the second test, what else was going on? Like so many factors to consider. I was eating heavy red meat. So, you know, 80, 20 ground beef, lots of fatty meat. Um, And then I went to a high fat carnival lifestyle. So I was curious around what happened to my blood lipids then. But then I've kind of changed that, not, you know, doing the one stick of butter and that kind of thing. But what is interesting is that for, so when I was doing a low fat diet and when I was yo-yo dieting, counting calories, my cholesterol was under a hundred. My doctor was so happy about that. And I know for you also that you also did the yo-yo dieting and the low fat dieting. Can you share more about that and how your health was at that time? Because that is so important to understand and it shows why cholesterol is not bad for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 65 pounds overweight on a fat-free diet. I was a chronic yo-yo dieter. So I counted calories. I counted points. I ate chicken, brown rice, and broccoli, literally trying to eat probably less than 20 grams of fat per day. I had terrible cravings, excessive hunger. Uh, I was trying to do excessive cardio, maybe an hour to two hours a day. And, you know, like crazy two hour spin classes on the weekends. Um, And yet I thought I was doing all the right things and my hormones were messed up. I felt like I was a different person two weeks out of the month. Uh, My cycles were very irregular. I had a lot of digestive issues. So um, bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea, all the things that nobody wants to talk about. And it really just set me on a path looking for something different. Um, I just was finally at the point after probably 10 years, this was in my 20s, of trying to just go in these circles, these yo-yos and on again, off again, because of course I couldn't sustain it. Um, And it was, I had weekly cycles of like, okay, I'm going to be good starting Monday and then Tuesday. And then it would, I'm sure you can relate. Then by Thursday, you kind of felt like you couldn't do this. Then the weekend comes, you're going out with friends, frequenting restaurants, parties, things like that. And then you're off the wagon. And then guess what happens Monday morning? Back on the wagon again. And this cycle just repeated and repeated and repeated. And, um, you know, I didn't know anything different. I thought I was doing the right thing. I was doing what Shape Magazine told me to do. And, you know, all these uh, fitness publications and personal trainers that I worked with that were friends of mine and had really good intentions, right? But it just didn't work for me. And so I, at that point in time, so this was like 2006 into 2007. Um, I knew about Atkins. That was kind of like where I started of like, well, I haven't tried this lower carb thing. You know, I, I, uh, used to crave a lot of fatty foods, 
Um, I would crave, actually would crave ice cream. And, you know, looking back, I always say like, there is no shortage of ice cream going on. But I think intuitively at some point, our bodies know what, you know, what, know what we need. It's just sometimes the, the waters are a little muddy when, when we're figuring that out. So I did start to increase the red meat, uh, decrease the amount of chicken breast I was eating, eat fattier meats, cheese, uh, decrease the carbs. And that just sort of sent me into low carb keto and eventually carnivore. Um, and as that first year progressed and I really started to feel better with a reduction in my hunger cravings, I started to drop weight, started to feel better overall. That's when I realized like I couldn't be the only woman out there struggling with yo-yo dieting and these on again, off again cycles. Um, and so that, uh, just, you know, I looked into functional nutrition and functional medicine and different certifications. And I just knew at that point that again, I wanted to help other women that were struggling with the same challenges that I had. And there had to be a bet, you know, there had to be a better way. Oh my God. It sounds like you and me, this, I had the same journey, the low fat, the exercise, trying every diet. I was like 30 pounds overweight, like not 65 pounds overweight, but it's so interesting that we went through the same cycles. So I'm curious, when you switched from the low fat or no fat to your high fat and carnivore, what happened to your cholesterol levels? So my cholesterol, so I don't, I don't remember. This was like, you know, at that point in time, I, 2006, when I first started, before I started looking at blood work, I didn't really know what I was looking for. So historically, I do know and I do remember that my cholesterol was always in the 100s. Uh, I also know that I had a ton of hormone issues for, you know, throughout those years. So I can't say for sure that, you know, because I wasn't able to raise it to 200 back then. But at this point, uh, looking back, it's always been in the 200s for me, and I've always felt better in the 200s and the 100s. I always tell my women clients I'd rather them be in the 200s than the 100s. Um, there even is a lot of, um, let's say, discrepancy with opinion on cholesterol, even in the functional medicine space. So not, not so much low carb, but even in the functional medicine space, there is still definitely some disagreement with, I'll, you know, air quote, high cholesterol and what that means and that kind of stuff. That's why I think it's so important to look at all the other metabolic inflammatory markers, all of the thyroid markers, you know, uh, you know, I also look at a lot of adrenal and cortisol testing too. So I feel like taking everything into consideration is the, you know, is the best way to get a, a real picture of what's happening. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about all these other markers that you have to look at, not just total cholesterol. Um, so let's move on to the next one, which is LDL, which is the so-called bad cholesterol. Now for me, it went four times higher, 63 to 234. Are you shocked with that? Yay. Yay. <laughs> Why do you say yay? Is that good? Well, raising LDL, I mean, uh, cholesterol and saturated fat are the backbone for our steroid hormones. So all of our, all of our hormones are synthesized from LDL and cholesterol. So in order to have hormone balanced hormones, we need to have some cholesterol on board for our bodies to utilize. Perfect. So if you were my blood work specialist back then, four years ago, would you say, yes, Rena, you're doing a good job. Keep at what you're doing. You don't have to go on that statin. Yes. I mean, I can't, you know, I always tell clients, I can't tell you what you should or shouldn't do as far as your doctor goes. However, I can tell you that if you don't agree, you should get a second opinion or you should get a third opinion or even a fourth opinion. 
you know, hint, hint. That's what Dr. Chafee said to me, fire her, find someone else. And I said, okay, all right. Hard to find a doctor that understands this stuff. That's why I'm fortunate to speak to everyone and you so that we can all have a better understanding of what is the right values. Um, another question relating to LDL, and this is something that I always hear on my Twitter. So when I talk about LDL, they say, go test your APOB. Okay, earlier when you talked about cholesterol and LDL, uh, before, you know, if I have clients that are concerned about that, I will tell them, go get a particle size test, go get a CAC scan, go make, you know, see what those baselines are and then go from there as far as cholesterol goes. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be looking at all of the markers, uh, you know, like we, like we talked about with the metabolic inflammation and that kind of stuff. But as far as the cholesterol, if there's a concern, Go get those particle size tests. Go get that CAC scan. Then correlate all of that information together, and then go from there with what you want to do your next with what you want to do with your next steps cholesterol wise. So that is the LDL and the total cholesterol, which the doctor was like, "Okay, I'm really concerned about this. You know, they're really, really high." But on the other hand, your HDL, which is your so-called good cholesterol, that has increased a little bit. So well done. <laughs> so. Why is HDL important? Well, HDL is, you know, what they say the good cholesterol is, and we still need to have a good amount of that HDL as far as our bodies go. Um, I think that looking at, you know, raising that with good quality fats, omegas, um, exercise is another one, you know, balanced exercise. I say balanced because we don't want to get too much cardio, too much, you know, stressor from the exercise. It has to be, you know, a good amount for someone's body, what they need, all of that stuff. And what are some ranges that people should look at for, you know, a good HDL number should be above a hundred? Uh, yeah, I would say above, above a hundred is fantastic. Even above 85 is really good. Okay. Let's move on to triglycerides. Um, and that actually slightly lowered. So why for me, so why is triglycerides Everybody says, look at your triglycerides. Is that a precursor towards inflammation? Uh, it definitely can be. And we want to have lower triglycerides. This is another one where surprisingly, I'm going to say there is a little bit of controversy in the functional medicine, space, functional medicine space about this, that you can actually have triglycerides that are too low. Um, but triglycerides are the fat that's floating around in your blood. It's you know, common to see these elevate a little bit when someone is actually losing weight. It's also common to see elevated triglycerides if someone's drinking a lot of coffee, had coffee the morning of the blood test. So there's a lot of factors here. And again, um, actually, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but always creating from always creating the same environment. So you always want to fast for the same amount of time. You always want to, um, you know, I would always the the blood lab will say you can drink coffee before a blood test. I would refrain from coffee before a blood test because everything that you do can always affect those numbers and you always want to create an even uh, playing field, so to speak, every time you create the same uh, scenario, every time you get the blood drawn. So it's always comparing I'm going to say apples to apples, but I'm going to say steaks to steaks. <laughs> so if you're eating a lot of steak, a lot of ribeye, does that help lower your triglycerides? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely can. Uh, because a lot of people, those numbers are high due to too much carb and sugar uh, consumption versus steak consumption. Okay. Because I think a lot of doctors that you'll meet, they're going to say lower the red meat consumption 
You can have meat, you, you can have poultry and lean protein, but lower your red meat consumption because that's going to, you know, clog up your arteries. And I think even though we hear this a lot from people like you and experts out there, there is still that kind of fear factor around, oh, maybe I should reduce my red meat. Is red meat perfectly safe for our health and should we be eating it for the long term as much as we want? Uh, I feel like we should be eating it for the long term as much as we want. I think that a lot of the information out there is based on people eating red meat with bread and sugar and carbs and milkshakes and french fries and they're not looking at eating meat in uh you know on its own versus with all of the other junk that usually goes with it so if anybody has their cholesterol numbers out there share your cholesterol numbers in the comments and let's get the information out there that high cholesterol is good and be proud of it so the next one i want to talk about is vitamin d and this is something that not many people talk about. So my vitamin D was 19 and then it went to 16. That's low. Did you say 16, like one six? Yeah. And I thought that was very low. Does that have anything to do with a carnivore diet? So your vitamin D should go up on carnivore, not go down. I optimal vitamin D that I look for with my clients is 80 to hundred. So the U S range is the U.S. medical range is 30 to 100. Optimal range. So I'm always looking for optimal when it comes to blood ranges, which are a lot smaller than what the medical ranges are. Uh, and optimal is 80 to 100. So anything below 80, while, you know, 70 is close to 80, I get clients who are at 12, 17, 30, even 30 is way too low. But because it's at the beginning of the medical range, the doctor says, oh yeah, your vitamin D is normal. Yet someone is having tons of autoimmune issues, other immune system stuff going on. And vitamin D is such an important uh, nutrient and uh, some say hormone for a lot of different things. So why, what does vitamin D do in the body? Helps to reduce inflammation. It helps to support the immune system. It helps with um, bone strength. It helps with, you know, many, many different things. Um, Energy, mood uh, can be very much connected to vitamin D. So a lot of times you hear in the winter time with um, sad seasonal affective disorder, uh, vitamin D being really low, especially in places where are that are really cold, lots of snow. Uh, vitamin D can really uh, be affected and be helpful in those scenarios. What can we people out there that are deficient in vitamin D, as I might? What can we do about it? Yeah. So getting sunshine is super key, which of course, as we know, everyone, you know, medical says, oh, sun will cause cancer, but sun can really be helpful for getting your vitamin D. Uh, we can also consume uh, foods like salmon, uh, you know, fatty foods like butter that are rich in all the fat soluble vitamins, um, and then improve your, your, your gut absorption. So a lot of nutrient deficiencies come from um, having uh, poor digestion, leaky gut, things of that nature. So improving digestion can also improve a lot of those nutrient that nutrient absorption. Do you think there's a place for supplements uh, with with vitamin D if you have low vitamin D? Hundred percent. So I am a big believer in supplements. Another very controversial topic, and I also believe that supplements are supplemental. So food first always making sure you're dialing in your, your macros, your protein, your fat, um, all of that, getting that correct for what your body needs, and then looking at what's beyond that. So 
food is that foundation and then building on that foundation. So to answer your question, yes, I definitely see a, a value and need for vitamin D supplementation because I cannot tell you how many clients come to me and say they're carnivore, they get sun, you know, they use these apps that say when you should get the sun and how much sun you should get and all this stuff. And they're consuming all the vitamin D foods and we run their blood and they're at 30, they're at 20 and they just can't understand why it's so low. So it's, it's some type of immune, you know, their immune system is compromised. They're dealing with autoimmune stuff, other leaky gut, you know, gut pathogens, things like that, that can, you know, their body might be using their vitamin D up faster than it can. Um, let's just say store it for lack of a better word. So yes, I do believe in vitamin D supplementation. Absolutely. So maybe I should take a vitamin D supplement. <laughs> I'm scared. Like maybe I'm thinking, do I have a uh, leaky gut or something? Because, hmm. Okay. What supplement would you recommend? I'm going to like really invest in, increase my vitamin D now. I'm scared because I just thought, oh, it's vitamin D. Who cares? But it's actually very important. So because I was researching about vitamin D. So what actual supplements would you recommend? So I would recommend looking and might be different what's available there than what's available here. So I would look for a liquid supplement and I would make sure that you check the ingredients and check the carrier oils. Um, see if they have, you know, like there's uh, like the the brand called Thorn, they make a, a vitamin D liquid that has the carrier is MCT oil. You're not going to find a carry a supplement that has a animal based carrier oil, but you can find a supplement that doesn't have seed oils. So that's just, you know, something to note on that. Okay. Cause everything just has seed oils. I mean, you just have to be like an investigator with everything. If it's a pretty label on the front, make sure you look at the back. Well, a label is a warning label. Um, what is the signs and <laughs> that's what I heard. And I was like, that makes so much sense. So if I buy beef, I just make sure there's no label or something. I'm like, okay, that's pure. And even though it's not grass fed, that's okay. I just make sure all of my food, there's no labels. And I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm toxic free, but then they pack it in plastic. And I was like, really? I'm doing a label free thing and you're packing it in plastic. Come on. I know. And you know, in fact, I do get asked about that a lot as far as the plastic and freezer storage and that kind of thing. And I think it's important that we look at things on a much bigger picture. So use glass for storage in the refrigerator where you can use jars where you can, you know, try to limit a lot of our exposure, skincare products, things like that. But there was a time years ago where I was trying to avoid everything and it made it so, so stressful that I finally got to a point where I had to say like, okay, I need to step back here for a second because this is not sustainable what I'm, what I'm trying to do. And it's not going to be sustainable for other people either that I'm guiding and coaching. So I do think being aware of plastic and things like that is super important, but for food storage, and if, you know, if you want to freeze a batch of meat or get a half a cow or something like that, there aren't a lot of options. So I think it's better that someone gets that half a cow and, you know, it's packed in plastic and we don't worry about it as far as that goes, because there's not a lot of other options. And then worry about the things that we can, we can control, you know, storage once you put something in the refrigerator um, glass containers. Once you cook your meat, I do a lot of batch cooking, you know, three to five pounds of meat at a time. So after it's cooked, it goes in glass containers and that's how we store it in the fridge. That's really a good idea because that helps you stay carnival. And we're going to talk about how to start carnival the right way. According to Danny, meal ideas, meal timing and everything. But I want to continue with the vitamin D because I just wanted to know quickly, 
what are signs and symptoms that somebody has low vitamin D? Just in case they haven't got a test and they want to know, well, maybe I have low vitamin D. I think the most uh, obvious symptoms, I don't think there's a lot of obvious symptoms, but I do think that low mood, anxiety, uh, depression, I, I would I don't want to say as strong as depression, but for some people, especially in wintertime, I think those can definitely be keys that vitamin D is low. So I also wanted to ask a question relating to the sun. Now, why do carnivores get less sunburn? I believe it's because there's less seed oils. I have also had carnivores that do get sunburned. So I would say to people, proceed with caution And if you're going to be outside for eight hours, invest in some organic sunscreen. I know a lot of people are probably going to hear that and be like, you know, no, that's not true or whatever. But I think people should be safe than sorry. And I don't think it's a guarantee for everyone. Let's move to the next one. Kidney function. Now, my kidney function measured by eGFR stayed the same. It's above 90. So that's good. But I want to make clear for people that are starting carnivore or even keto and they're eating a lot of red meat, does protein or red meat damage the kidneys? Uh, I don't believe it does. I don't see, I don't see that in practice. I think that when I see kidney markers that are off on blood work, I look at hydration. I look at electrolytes. I look at adrenal function and I look at overall, like I do compare to some liver markers and liver detoxification because the kidneys are a big part of the detoxification process as well. What about your creatinine level? Is that important as well, along with EGFR to look at your kidney function? Yeah, I think uh, kidney markers, looking at the um, creatinine, looking at the BUN, looking at, you know, again, the liver markers as well, not direct kidney markers, but when I'm looking at those markers, I'm looking at the whole, you know, as a functional medicine uh, practitioner, I'm looking at the whole system. So how everything functions together and then making an evaluation of what someone should look at, what someone should do. Um, you know, this is a big pet peeve of mine and I don't know where you stand on this. So we have, we didn't talk about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So, so we'll see what you say. A lot of, uh, in the carnivore space, a big recommendation that's made is to only drink water when you're thirsty. And, I see a lot of dehydration on blood work from clients that are like, I was told to only drink when I'm thirsty. And I think people's thirst cues are just as broken as their hunger cues. And I think that can be a big setup for um, a bigger setup for kidney problems than eating red meat. Mm -hmm. I'm not the expert here, but from what I've seen with, um, you know, coaching people and on the group and every, and and you have your groups as well, that is a big thing. Uh, You know, we hear different things in the carnival community around eat as much fat or as much meat as you want. Um, Drink when you're, you know, you don't have to drink a lot of water, just drink when you're thirsty. I think even when you start a carnival diet, you do have to eat more or you do have to, I say, or we say, the coaches say, track what you eat initially because you want to make sure you're eating enough protein and enough fat. And people, when they go to carnivore, they're so overly satiated, they don't eat enough and then they don't drink enough water. So they're just feeling all the side effects as well can come from not eating enough and not drinking enough. Is that what you see as well? Yeah, hundred percent. Chronic under eating and a lot is, is a big problem. Let's talk about some other things that people can look at with their blood test. 
a complete blood count. So that includes red blood cells, white blood cells, hemoglobin. So why is that important to look at and what can change on a carnivore diet with your complete blood count? Uh, well, we should see complete blood count improve. Um, when I look at those markers, I'm looking for tendencies towards uh, what their B vitamin status is, what their iron status is, white blood cell count. That can be an indicator of an underlying infection of some kind. Uh, when I run a CBC, I'm always running it with a differential marker. So that can show an underlying load on their immune system from bacterial, viral, allergens, pathogens, things like that. So the, you know, that CBC with differential is key and definitely, um, on every, every blood panel that I run, I run about 91 to hundred total markers, but that's definitely part of it. Let's move on to liver function. So you said liver function measured by these are two kind of, they call it liver enzymes, AST and ALT. What should they be looking at in terms of their liver function? What are good numbers or uh, reference ranges to show that your liver and your kidneys are working well? With the AST and ALT, the medical range is usually about in US is usually about 10 to 26. Uh, optimal that I look for is in the range of 15 to 17. Uh, there's also alkaline phosphatase, which is another one that is sometimes considered a liver enzyme. Um, that one can be related to some nutrient deficiencies as well. Uh, I look for over 75 there. And then with low liver enzymes, that can also be a B6 deficiency. So there's a lot going on there. And when I reference the uh, connection with um, kidney and liver function. I'm talking about more about detoxification um, and how we would look at that in more of a functional way than um, medical way. Medical uh, doesn't really address like, you know, functional detoxification, so to speak. So let's look at the next one, fasting insulin. Do you have to have that done? I didn't have that done because it's not a standard test in Australia when you have your standard blood test. Should you have that done if you're new to carnival? Um, I think I think so. I run it on every client. I think it's super important. This is another one. So again, I am looking for optimal. Um, the medical range for fasting insulin is 2 to 25. That's huge, okay? Optimal is that I look for is 4 to 6. So it's a very tight, yes, yes, very tight range. Um, and there's some other, you know, information out there, you know, that below nine is good, below eight is good. Yeah, definitely better there than 20. Um, but optimal insulin that I look for is four to six. And yes, I do think everyone should try to get that tested. There's a lot of pushback from doctors on that one, because a lot of times if you have no diabetes or blood sugar dysregulation diseases in your family, they will say that it's unnecessary. So that is definitely important to look at meta overall metabolic health. Um, I'm correlating that with other metabolic markers. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, my approach is test don't guess. So when someone is first doing carnivore and they're wanting to see, you know, how things improve, you can't know if it's improved if you don't have a baseline. That's why I put at the bottom here. So I have my notes here. So I put... Uh, do you think that people should have their blood work done when you start carnivore and have that baseline and then wait a few months and then test it again and then again a few months later? And the reason why I wanted to ask you that is because it's not that you're having these numbers and they're set in stone. You want to see the change over time. Yeah. And I think it's also good, you know, life happens over time. And I think it's also good to 
sort of do an evaluation and then see how things progress, like you say, and see how things change. And, you know, there's times where people will kind of stray a little bit from what they think their diet is and they don't realize it. And then, you know, a little bit of a check here and there could show someone that, oh, wait a second, you know, oh, wait, I haven't, uh, I got off track. I haven't actually been doing what I was doing at the very beginning. And so that can be helpful too. So after fasting insulin, I put here C-reactive protein. I didn't get that test done, but it's a good marker for inflammation. What is C-reactive protein? Um, So it's a protein that is made in the liver and rises with inflammation. Um, And then C-reactive protein, that's another one with a bigger bigger range, so to speak. I like to see that one below 1.5 for sure. You know, you want the highly sensitive CRP and I definitely think that it should be a standard test. Next one is the thyroid panel. So you said you can't just test one thing in isolation. What is the host of things that we need to test for our thyroid? What I test for with thyroid is the expanded thyroid panel, which includes TSH, T3, T4, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, T3 uptake, and the thyroid antibodies, TPO and thyroglobulin. I'm probably missing one or two, but off off memory, that's uh, what I test. And then looking at everything together. So if, you know, if um, T3 is low, if T4 is low, you know, what's happening with somebody's, you know, entire system, what are their adrenals doing? So adrenal and thyroid function are very very connected, and that's not something that the doctors will tell you. So let's say that somebody gets their thyroid tested. Can you rely on those reference ranges? No. So when I, so everything that I look at is for optimal versus medical. So the medical or reference ranges that are given on a blood test, on a standard blood test are based on the entire population. Well, guess what? Our entire population is pretty sick as a whole. And so the optimal ranges, if medical ranges are here, optimal ranges are going to be much smaller and tighter. And that's where I want clients to be because that's where they're going to feel the best. People are, the problem is, and this was me years ago too, because the doctor's like, oh, your blood work is normal. You know, I'm like, well, then why do I, why am I still overweight? Why do I still have hormone issues and all of that? Well, when you're, you know, in the normal range, you can still have a whole host of things going on under the surface. That's why looking for that optimal, those smaller ranges are a lot more, are very important. Okay. So the last one I put here, and this is something that Dr. Carl Goldcamp, who's another doctor I interviewed, he said, you should test your omega-3s and 6s. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, important. But for me, that's lower on the importance, the priority list. I feel like if I'm working with a client, dialing in their diet, figuring out how much protein, how much fat they should be getting on carnivore, um, even on keto, if they're not quite carnivore yet, and getting them on the right animal-based foods and off of the seed oils and um, inflammatory foods, then I'm not so worried initially about their omega-3 and omega-6 profile. I think that's a test that if someone you know, once I'm working with them for six to eight months, and then they get to a point where like, okay, they're ready to retest, they're ready to fine tune even further. For me, that would be like a next level type of test. So once you have your blood test done, and you know, everything that we have to look at. Now, the thing is, how do we start carnival the right way, according to Danny, because you like to look at having enough protein, having enough fat, and you see a lot of clients. So you have how many clients have you coached these last two decades? Thousands thousands between my one-on-one practice 
my group programs. What is the first starting point that you would say with how much protein somebody should eat? So as a very, I, I hesitate to give this number, but I'm just going to give it anyways, because you asked. Um, so as a general, general baseline, I would say around a hundred grams per day. Most people, most women, I would say 80% of my practice is women, 80 to 90% is women. Um, when I, when they come to me, even if they're carnivore for a period of anywhere from three months to a year prior to coming to work with me, they are still under eating protein. I still see women at 60, 70, 80 grams of protein a day, wondering why they can't build muscle, they can't lose weight, and they can't sleep at night, and they've got hormone issues. So I give that number very generally. I just want to make that super clear. Um, And then kind of building from there, fine-tuning from there with goals, activity level, um, stats, individual stats, height, weight, all of that stuff needs to be taken into consideration. That's so interesting because every person that I speak to, they say the same thing. And it's interesting when you talk about the context of a high fat carnival diet, that never means lowering your protein. That means increasing your fat. So you are actually eating a hundred plus grams of protein, but you're actually eating more fat grams for the healing purposes. Yeah, agreed. So I definitely um, have a high fat and you could almost say a high fat and a high protein approach. Um, I have just seen the low protein backfire in so many cases, even when people are trying to maintain ketosis. I think that there are so many more things that are important than, than, you know, the low protein approach. Now, how much fat, this is something that is really hard for each person to, because I just want to know, give me the number, how much I should eat, but it really, really varies. Well, again, so the number that I give is going to be based on all of their individual stats. Um, If I'm giving a range, I'm going to say it could be anywhere from, uh, I don't want it to be less than whatever amount of protein they're having. If they're around that 100 gram mark, I think that lower than 100 grams of fat is not enough fat. Um, I also think we have to look at the individual person, their digestive function. Can they process the fat they're eating? Um, Are they bloated all the time? How many meals a day are they eating? So all of those things are going to go into consideration or should be taken into consideration for the amount of fat that they should be getting. Okay, I say the same thing. It's so good. When you say the, the 100 grams of fat, and that's when when I hear like things like protein spring modified fast, and we tried that in our groups and it was just like, it sounded like a great idea. And then you try eating 50 grams of fat or 30 grams of fat, you're going mental. And then you just think, wow, my body needs fat. Yeah, and I mean, I lost all my weight and I've maintained my weight, improved my body composition after my initial weight loss with higher fat and more than adequate protein. So I understand the concept behind that approach and more power to people that it's worked for them. I am also looking at long-term hormone balance, long-term, long-term digestive function, um, long-term cognition, brain health, um, all of those things that women are com- coming to me for. Um, and that's what I'm taking into consideration with my with my um, food and diet recommendations based on their goals. And when it comes to how much somebody should eat, so we know, you know, 100 grams of protein minimum, 100 grams of fat minimum, but it really varies. So there is a thing what people call calories. Do you think that matters on Carnival? I love this question. (laughs) So um, I think that for some people, 
calories or energy. I teach calories as energy because we have to consume enough energy on a daily basis to be able to have enough energy to expend on a daily basis. So I think that they do matter for some people and they don't matter for other people. And again, that nuance of individual approach, um, there are a lot of people out there that just start eating carnivore and animal-based. And, you know, when I say animal-based, I'm not talking about, um, I'm talking about carnivore. So I should just be clear about that. Um, I think that there's a lot of people out there that don't need to get that specific and still get results. And I see more people and work with more people that do need to be specific because they are chronic under eaters and there are definitely chronic overeaters out there. Um, I work with both in my groups and in my practice and kind of fine tuning, like, like not like with the overeaters, we got to drop it a little bit so they feel better and they can get their results, but we have to drop that slowly with the under eaters. We have to raise what they're doing, but we also have to raise that slowly so their body can um, adjust properly as well. So it's definitely a fine balance of fine tuning um, and an art, so to speak, to be able to to do that. But I do think that um, uh, under eating is definitely problematic and um, dialing in the right amount for someone's body and metabolism should be the end goal. So 1200 calories is not enough, right? 100%. Unless someone's a very, I always say a very small person with a very slow metabolism. And even then there are ways to improve that but you just have to do it slowly. It's important to say that because I think when people think of a diet and some people think of carnivore as a diet and not a way of life, they do attach that calorie number to it. And all like an easier way to think about it is not to think about calories, but track your macros and just make sure you're eating enough of those you know, macronutrients. And over time, then don't track anything because you know what you have to eat. And that's the beauty of carnivore. It's just eating meat. Um, and the other thing is, and I want to hear your thoughts, adding in extra fat to your meat you know, if you have a ribeye and just thinking, oh, I've got to add lots of butter or lots of fat, what do you think about that? I think some people do. I think um, some people need the higher fat uh, and some people don't. So there's going to be some people that do really well with uh, just having that ribeye. And then if they have leaner meats, then adding fat to those meals. Um, and then there's going to be some that do tolerate a higher fat amount that will do well adding fats to ribeyes. And then, of course, all of what's added, um, what's broken down as far as macros per meal, that's going to be based on what their stats are, what their individual needs are, what their activity levels are, what their hormones are doing, what their gut is doing, what they can process. And that's where one size never fits all. Another thing that one size doesn't fit all, which is the last thing I want to ask you, is meal timing. And this is for somebody new to Carnival. I hear so much that they just jump into an OMAD. Or they just jump into a two mat because everyone does that. I think that it's a strategy that doesn't work for everyone for sure. Uh, when someone first starts carnivore, I think that there's some people that are going to do really well going cold turkey, and there's others that are going to be that are going to do well with more gradual changes. So the cold turkey, I mean, that's pretty that's pretty easy. They just go carnivore and they eliminate everything. You know, this day, this time, we're carnivore. You know, I'm carnivore, and that's how it's going to be. I think on the, the gradual changers, so to speak, I think that working on sort of overcrowding the other foods that they're trying to get out of their diet with the steak, with the butter, with the ghee, with the tallow, with the bacon, with the pork belly, um, all of the animal, you know, animal foods, uh, I 
agree with a lot of variety as well, especially in the beginning. So they feel like they have a good um, sort of a lot of things to choose from, if you will. And then kind of going from there and of course, fine tuning. Um, but I think that um, as far as the initial starting um, and the meal timing, uh, I think that two to three meals is going to be best. I don't think that people should go into heroic fasting right away. My approach, I think fasting is a great tool. So I will say, you know, I just want to say that. Um, and I'll add that my approach is always what I call fueling before fasting. And that means making sure that we get the eating window correct and what the foods that we need in that eating window correct before trying to and maintaining that for a little while. So it's not just like one day, oh yeah, my eating window is good. I had three meals and then I'll start fasting tomorrow. It's doing that for a period of time, getting to a place where they are all carnivore, especially for the gradual changers, so to speak. And then going from there, um, implementing fasting and other tools that might be best for their bodies. I want to ask you a personal question as a last question. How do you have abs? <laughs> when I saw your photo, I was like, wow, that's incredible. Well, you know, I will say that they are, a lot of them are made in the kitchen. I will say that. I will tell you that I tried to do crunches till my, I was blue, blue in the face many years ago. And just after being so diligent and consistent with the diet, uh, lots of meat, good fat, uh, workout, obviously effective workouts, not overstressing my body. So I had to um, back off from two to three hour, like I, like I told you, cardio workouts. Even in the beginning when I transitioned my workouts, it was hard not to do that much resistance training. So full disclosure, I am definitely a recovered exercise addict for sure. Um, but I think that, you know, I've definitely learned that less is more. So I love my resistance training. I swim, I ride, I have two horses, so I ride horses and I don't focus a lot on my abs yet. They have come so easily in the last few years, especially. And I am, I, Rena, I'm going to tell you, like, I was not born genetically gifted to have abs. Like I am not one of those people who just like, you know, can eat anything I want and, oh yeah, I have abs. Right. So I just want to make that super clear um, as far as that goes as well. That makes sense. I'm also not gifted in that sense. I can easily put on weight and people just think I'm naturally slim. And I say, no, it's from what I eat. Yeah. I think that, you know, it gets to a point where when you do the right things, um, all of the metabolic markers, they get into balance. Things just rebalance themselves. Sometimes it takes more protocols and it's harder for people and it takes a little bit longer. Um, I like to say sometimes it takes just food and other times food is all it takes. Yep, absolutely. Well, Danny, how can people find you? Um, they can find me on my Instagram, which is at carnivore.keto.fitness. Uh, my website is nutritionthenaturalway.com. I hope you enjoy this interview. Now you need to watch this video next with Dr. Ovedia, all about the worst food that destroys your heart. I'll see you guys next week.